This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where the governor presides over the first meeting of his task force to rebuild Florida's economy after the COVID-19 pandemic. It was, of course, conducted remotely. As the politicians talk about restarting our economy, some Florida doctors are warning us to be cautious. Until better tests are available and more people are checked, they say it is not safe to return to business as usual. Florida farmers have been hit hard by coronavirus. A new report from the state agriculture commissioner says the losses so far add up to more than $500 million. If you're stuck at home with kids during the lockdown, you already know they're getting antsy. On the Sunrise interview, we'll talk with a doctoral student in psychology at Florida State University who has some tips for reassuring the youngins and keeping them engaged. We'll also have your daily calendar of political events and check in with Florida Man and his Florida Woman. Both are doctors facing criminal charges for what they call a game of capture the flag. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Tuesday, April 21st. Let's begin with the numbers. The latest report from the Florida Department of Health shows there are now more than 27,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 and 823 fatalities in Florida, including 49 deaths over the past 24 hours. The Reopen Florida Task Force holds its first formal meeting. It's a group of corporate leaders and politicians, and Governor Ron DeSantis says their goal is to bring Florida's economy back to the good old days, which in this case was about two months ago. You know, you're going to have restaurants, you're going to have hospitality, you're going to have all these things where how do you approach this in a way that is obviously going to be safe, uh, but I think even just as important is, is the confidence of the public. I mean, you know, you had uh, a lot of stuff being said in March about, you know, just about this virus, which is a serious pathogen, but I think it was really where people were legitimately just frightened to the dickens. And so if you start having restaurants, even on a limited basis, how much confidence are people going to have you know, that that's safe or some of the other things that we used to take for granted. And the way I view it is some of these other states have done a lot of ham-fisted uh, restrictions. You know, like if you walk in your driveway, you'll get harassed. You can't plant a flower, things like that. And, and I think all that's counterproductive. I mean, what we're trying to do is this is a virus that is generally transmitted uh, when you're in close contact with someone, usually for a repeated amount of time and usually in an enclosed environment. Um, doesn't mean, you know, you can't just catch it on a whim if you just happen to be in the right place. But most of the transmissions are going to be in that type. So how do you run a business where you're minimizing the close contacts between employees or between an employee and a customer? Um, how do you do it in ways where the environment is less conducive to, to transmitting this thing? I think there's a whole lot of ideas out there, and I think obviously you guys will be a part of getting us in a good direction to be able to go forward. So I just want to say thank you for doing this. This is going to be really, really important for the state of Florida. I mean, we've had, uh, we were chugging along very well. You know, you look at places uh, like Miami, it was like you couldn't even uh, drive a block without seeing a crane somewhere. I mean, just, we were really on fire in many respects. Uh, this is obviously a roadblock for the whole country. Uh, but I think if we bounce back in a very thoughtful safe and efficient way um, that I think we can minimize or at least mitigate some of the damage that's been done and hopefully have a path back uh, where Florida can be the place that, that people are looking to uh, for leadership in terms of that's the way it's done. Just think about that for a moment. Florida Man wants us to be the model for the rest of the country. 
Governor DeSantis has been mocked for being too slow to go into lockdown and for taking his cues from the White House during the pandemic. But he's quite proud of what the state has done. Just give a listen to this video message his office sent out to everyone who signed up for the state's COVID-19 alert system. Last month, media reports came flying in that Florida would run out of hospital and ICU beds due to the coronavirus. They posted scary charts. They said we were a week or two behind Italy or New York. Yet we did not panic. In fact, in close coordination with local officials, we made fact-based, data-backed decisions to flatten the curve and protect Floridians. I declared a state of emergency and activated the Florida National Guard. I suspended visitation in nursing homes and assisted living facilities and required strict screening procedures for all associated staff. I moved Florida students to virtual learning and I issued a mandatory 14-day quarantine for visitors from coronavirus hotspots like New York. We set up an innovative and aggressive testing operation marked by drive-through testing sites, community-based walk-up testing sites, and strike team testing in nursing homes and assisted living facilities. Florida has now tested nearly 260,000 people. We recently passed California for second most in the country and have tested about one for every 84 individuals in our state. In South Florida, which has seen 60% of our cases, we've tested one individual for every 60. We hired an additional 100 epidemiologists to help support the Department of Health's tireless contact tracing efforts. We've been running the biggest emergency logistics operation in state history. We set up field hospitals, including a 450-bed hospital in the Miami Beach Convention Center, and have over 400 medical professionals on standby, not even including the National Guard's medical unit. Data shows these efforts are working well, especially when compared to what the experts predicted many weeks ago. In fact, our hospital bed and ICU bed space has been increasing, not decreasing. Our field hospitals remain empty. The number of hospitalizations for 100,000 people are 15 times higher in New York than in Florida. Hospitalizations are also much higher per 100,000 people in states like Michigan, New Jersey, Illinois, and Louisiana. We did not follow the path of Italy or New York. Now we're not done and we have more work to do, but Floridians have stepped up and done a great job. And for that, I thank you. The governor's reopened Florida task force has two meetings scheduled today, and Florida Chamber of Commerce President Mark Wilson says they face the daunting task of rebuilding what used to be one of the largest economies in the world. Florida was on pace for a record year, and I think what we all know now is, you know, we were on pace for one kind of a record year, and we're probably going to end up with it being another kind of a record year. And so as we think about Florida at a glance, remember, we had our first case, confirmed case of COVID 49 days ago, back on March 2nd. So I want to give some context to what Florida's economy looked like around then, because as you uh, navigate how we restart our economy, again, the governor has continued to talk about using data and modeling and facts. As you think about restarting, we eventually need to recover back to where we were. And I want to give context for that. So I think everybody knows we're the third largest state in America. We typically grow by about 900 new people every day, seven days a week. And to give some flavor to that, that's 810, 90% of our 900 new residents a day come from another nation or from another state. 
So 90% of our growth on a daily basis comes from outside Florida, another state or another nation. In terms of job creation under Governor DeSantis's leadership, Florida was creating one out of every 11 new U.S. jobs. We've been doing that for a number of years now. In terms of visitors to Florida, last year uh, we welcomed more than 127 million visitors to Florida. More than 14 million of those were from other countries. So think about the importance of tourism to Florida. In terms of our GDP, um, at 1.11 trillion, if Florida was a nation, we would be the world's 17th largest economy. And our goal by 2030 is to be the 10th largest economy. And we hope you'll keep that in mind as, as you think about your recommendations. But one thing about that task force, the only healthcare professional on the executive committee is the president of Tampa General Hospital. And frankly, that job is more about business than medicine. And while both of her fellow cabinet members were named to the committee, Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed was snubbed, perhaps because she's the only Democrat holding statewide office and has been fairly candid about her lack of trust in the president and more recently in Ron DeSantis. Her office issued a statement saying it was another case of the governor putting politics ahead of the state, and she points out that he never once mentioned the impact on agriculture during the first meeting of his task force. Florida is the nation's second largest producer of seasonal specialty crops like blueberries, strawberries, tomatoes, peppers, cucumbers. But the demand for fresh produce has plummeted as large-scale buyers like restaurants, school districts, and food processing facilities have closed due to the coronavirus. A new report from Freed's office estimates the losses at more than $500 million as tons of fresh food is being left in the field to rot. Amidst all this talk about reopening Florida, there are plenty of people urging caution. Miami-Dade Congresswoman Debbie McCarcel-Powell says it's too soon. I think it's premature for a governor and any local elected official to begin opening beaches, to lose restrictions, or open up public spaces. I understand that we all want to return to our previous pre-corona lives, but easing precautions without public health infrastructure poses a danger to our public health, and it could extend the pandemic and do greater damage to our economy in the long run. After talking with constituents, local leaders, and public health experts, I know that there are three things that we must do to help us move forward immediately. One of those is something that we're doing this week. Congress has to pass this interim emergency aid package to help American workers and businesses stay afloat. And this is happening now. We should be able to pass this bill on Wednesday. The federal government must invest in a widespread rapid testing system, which we still don't have. We have a plan, the House Democrats and the Senate have a plan to invest $30 billion to begin implementing a comprehensive national testing strategy. The U.S. is right now um, only testing about 150,000 people a day in the United States. We need to triple that. We need to raise that to 500 or between 500 and 700,000 people a day if we want to open by mid-May. The public health infrastructure must include widespread rapid testing so that we can identify who has the virus and how we can contain the spread. We also need to implement a comprehensive contact tracing plan so that we understand once we know who has that the virus, we can quarantine those who do and prevent new clusters of this disease from emerging. We must invest in our healthcare workers, healthcare providers and frontline workers so that they have the necessary equipment, that PPE equipment, 
that many are still lacking so that they can treat anyone who tests positive with a, without exposing themselves to risk. The healthcare experts are on the same page. Dr. John Norris of Key West says there is no way to reopen safely yet because there are so many things we simply don't know about COVID-19. If you open this community now with the lack of resistance, considering that we don't even really understand in a five to six month old disease, what that word resistance means. We don't have the tool to monitor the population, don't have the PPE to defend our, our troops in the, in the hospitals. Most of the seasoned physicians and nurses are over the age of 50. Are we really going to tell them to constantly reuse masks and PPE garb? Well, yes, we are, the same way it's been done every other place. That shouldn't be. We've had weeks to prepare. The hospital sits empty now because they've done such a good job shutting down and social distancing. But if we suddenly open everything up or if we make the uh, population think that we're wasting their time with no test kits, they're going to come out and we're going to get drowned. Dr. Eileen Marty in Miami-Dade County says we can't get back to normal until more people are checked. And she says they're getting too many false results, both positive and negative, from the current batch of test kits. I've spent all morning working with my colleagues at um, where I am at FIU because we recognize and we have been mandated to increase our capabilities of performing the tests in-house. So um, we're, we're trying to meet that need, but there's a lot of roadblocks to get to where we want to get to. And that's talking about the PCR testing. The other kind of testing that everybody would love to have is something that test your immunity to the virus, but all the kinds of tests that are out there right now for, for the immunity have flaws, uh, especially the ones that are, that, that people try, uh, you know, that are supposed to give you an answer within minutes. Those have a lot of false positives and a lot of false negatives and the reliability is very poor. So we're trying to get better versions and better things that, that give us real data that we can really work on. And in terms of people being able to uh, go back into the community and have a normal interaction. This is too deadly a virus and it's too serious a concern. We do have to do it by way of the science. Dr. Norris says one of the most insidious aspects of COVID-19 is the way it takes advantage of our fundamental humanity. We are social creatures who apparently don't do well with social distancing. COVID-19 turns our humanity against us. You would think it would be fairly easy, like uh, we have a peer here that some of the people who have broken away from the social distancing go to, and they don't socially distance six feet. I literally sat there and watched them. wasn't a huge number, but it grows every day. And this is uh, human nature. Human nature is to be social. I'm a social person. I will tell you that I miss my friends seeing them not just flat on a screen, but seeing them in person, talking to them, being around them. Well, when it comes down to it, I talked about how people pass away and how the humanity of that is such a human moment, but yet you can't have the uh, family right there because they will hug, they will kiss. I mean, I've had people throw themselves on on the person who's passing. And it's um, literally, when, when it comes to humanity, you have to sit back and say uh, the consequences uh, versus the risk uh, versus the benefit. And I will tell you that the only way you really see what's going to hit your hospitals after you do that type of opening, two weeks later. 
And by that time, it's already spread even beyond the people who are coming to your ERs and your doctor's offices. When it gets to that point, basically um, your hospital staffs, your healthcare will stand its watch, but you endanger watching the curve go up. So test kits, PPE, absolutely critical to any kind of expansion that allows our humanity to get turned against us. With all that in mind, Congresswoman McCarcel Powell says it would be folly to start opening up the beaches, public parks, and other spots where people are guaranteed to gather. We don't have the proper infrastructure in place to make sure that we're enforcing six-foot distancing at a public park. Imagine having Miami-Dade County police all over public spaces, making sure that people have that distance. Even today we're seeing, even though we have this stay-at-home um, force, it hasn't been enforced, but it's a, it's been a recommendation here in the county. You saw what happened on Saturday when David Guetta was having that concert in downtown. People gathered all around. I mean, it's it's human nature that the moment anything opens up, people are going to flock. Everyone's tired of being at home, even though we live in a beautiful state where you could actually take a walk and we have good weather, but people still just want to go out. So the moment you open any public space, you're going to see huge numbers of people and we're going to have to have law enforcement all over the place. I say we need to wait. Uh, we need to see when we reach that peak. We need to make sure that we have enough testing in place. Of course, the longer everyone stays home, the more we start climbing the walls, especially children. Next up on the Sunrise Interview, we talk with a researcher from Florida State University who helped create a parenting guide for COVID kids during the lockdown. You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics. Welcome back to Sunrise. Our guest today is Isaac Rosadagon, a doctoral student in clinical psychology at Florida State University. He's one of the researchers who helped compile a list of parenting tips for kids who are stuck at home during the coronavirus pandemic. To be honest, there really isn't a lot of research on how these kinds of prolonged uh, stressors like pandemics or um, other things that have kids stay home for a long time. There's just not a lot of research that tells us how kids uh, respond to these situations. So a lot of the research on stressful situations is more um, for short-term things like hurricanes or earthquakes. Um, so it, it, the researchers are a little bit blind too. Uh, we're just kind of going off of what we um, know from kind of similar situations. But basically, one thing that we know is most kids are going to be fine during this time. You know, they'll They'll be a bit bored, perhaps. Uh, they might be more anxious than usual. They might have uh, flare-ups of behavioral problems. But um, most kids are going to be fine. The kids who might be more affected by this are kids who have had um, previous problems with anxiety or um, academic problems or are kind of prone to experiencing uh, negative feelings. And so those kids might have an exacerbation in symptoms related to COVID-19, and, and that's where it would be really helpful to get professional help. But um, for most kids, I, I think that um, this is going to be an unpleasant but uh, doable experience. What are the big, the big things that are really stressing kids out about the whole thing? I think uh, the big thing is uncertainty, right? So we've got these orders to stay at home, and um, it's related to this virus that kids can't even see. You know, so it's all very abstract, and we don't know when it's going to end. And so I think some kids may feel um, stressed out about uncertainty. And so one thing that we can do to kind of cope with uncertainty 
is focus on things that we can control, right? So parents can help kids to um, establish a routine, right? We do homework at this time. We do uh, housework at this time. We have meals at consistent times throughout the day. Um, we exercise each day, and, and we uh, importantly get a, a good amount of sleep each night. So uncertainty might be a big um, issue for a lot of kids, but really focusing on what we can control is, is helpful. I, I notice you also encourage imagination. That's the second in your list of things to do with the kids. <laughs> what does that, what yeah, does that mean well, exactly? Right. So that's more to kind of target the problem of boredom, right? So I've, I've been hearing from a lot of my kid clients that uh, they're just excessively bored during this time. And so one thing that parents can do to help with boredom is prompt kids to come up with imaginative scenarios, right? Kids, even though they spend more time on electronic devices than they did in the old days when we were growing up, um, they still have the powers of imagination. And so parents could come up with a list of things or help kids come up with a list of things that they can do uh, when they're feeling bored or they can um, kind of engage in imaginative play with them um, just to kind of help pass the time and, and give kids fun things to do while at home. And you also talked about increasing that sense of social connection, even though we're supposed to be socially distancing now. How does that work? Exactly. Yeah, right. So social distancing makes it harder to uh, feel like we're in touch with the important people around us. But I think it's actually a really good opportunity for people to kind of establish uh, good practices and establish um, kind of routines for reaching out to important people like family members who live far away, um, especially older family members who might be even more worried during this time, and reaching out to friends, too. So um, I, I think that parents can really help kids to um, call their friend from school. You know, like, hey, you haven't really talked to Jimmy in a while. Would you want to set up a, a Zoom chat with him next week or um, talk, to, talk to your friend Susie on the phone? Um, so social connection is something that buffers the effects of stress. And even though, you know, we're all isolated physically, we don't have to be isolated kind of emotionally. And you're also recommending, you know, basically giving kids a job, giving them some kind of helper role during the crisis. <laughs> what exactly can yeah. they do? So <laughs> I don't think that this is necessarily for every kid, but, um, if kids want to feel helpful, you know, you can give them a designated job in the house, like safety officer, right? So um, a, a kid can be in charge of uh, checking if people wash their hands when they come home from work or when they uh, come home from an outing to get groceries. Um, obviously, you know, kids don't need to have huge responsibilities, but it might be nice for kids to feel like they can be helpful so if, if parents are sewing masks or, you know, writing thank you letters to uh, frontline responders, it could be really great to involve kids in that too, you know, to give them a, a sense of kind of I'm contributing to the community and there's something very concrete that I can do to help uh, during this time. And you also recommend turning it into like a game with a reward system. <laughs> yeah, I think it, kids respond really well to um game version of things, right? So, you know, you can ha have a sticker chart or um, you can give kids like little prizes for kind of doing things to help others out. 
um, in general, like sticker charts and things like that are, are a really good way to increase behaviors that you want to see in kids too. Um, and so, you know, focusing on the kind of positive things that kids are doing and really rewarding those behaviors um, is going to be helpful, especially if kids do experience an increase in like stress or an increase in like defiance or kind of tantrums during this time. Cause it's, you know, it's understandable. Kids are cooped up. They, they're thrown out of their routine. They're cut off from seeing a lot of the people that they usually get to see. And so they might, you know, be a little bit more irritable than usual. And, and that's fine. Um, but parents can really focus on um, behaviors that they do want to see. And so far, we've been talking about things that I imagine are best or most effective on younger children. Uh, is there anything we can do for teens, or should we just accept sullenness as, the, as par for the course? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think some degree of sullenness is, has to be accepted. But um, teens will, I don't know, I think we should think about teens more in the way that we think about adults, right? So teens can kind of come up with nuanced ways of thinking about things and they might be better able to understand, well, what does COVID-19 really mean? And what, what, what is this pandemic about? Um, so teens might benefit from having like a safe space to express their feelings and just talk about well, what's making them anxious. You know, I think a lot of teens will tend to internalize and not really share what's making them anxious, but parents can model things like, um, you know, parents can say, I'm feeling worried today, or I'm feeling kind of stressed. Um, I think I'm going to go for a walk to help myself feel a little bit better, right? And so modeling that uh, when we do feel stressed or when we do feel anxious, there are actionable steps that I can take to um, help myself calm down. So really modeling for teens and for younger children is um, a great strategy to use. Our thanks to FSU doctoral student Isaac Merzadegon for taking time to share that advice. Your calendar of political events starts with the St. Pete College Board of Trustees holding an online meeting at 9. Florida International University's trustees will hold their meeting at 9.45. It's online, of course. The Florida Atlantic University Board of Trustees meets by conference call at 10. Members of the Governor's Task Force to Reopen Florida hold two meetings today by conference call. The Executive Committee meets at 10. The entire group meets at 2 to hear from the Governor. The new College Board of Trustees holds an online meeting at 1.30. The Florida Elections Commission will meet in conference call at 3. And U.S. Representative Debbie McCarcel Powell of Miami-Dade County, who's running for re-election this fall, will hold an online kickoff event for volunteers at 5.30 tonight. And it's time once again for the new adventures of Florida Man and his partner in crime. A Florida man and Florida woman who have day jobs as doctors face a total of eight misdemeanor counts after they were captured on video removing a Donald Trump flag from a neighbor's yard in Gulf Breeze. Jeffrey Frasch is a gynecologist at Sacred Heart Hospital. His wife, Laura, is an OBGYN at West Florida Hospital. Both are charged with trespassing, larceny, property damage, and contributing to the delinquency of a minor. That last charge was thrown in because they had two of their kids with them, one still in diapers. The older child can be heard on the video crying that he doesn't want them to go to jail. Dr. Frace told a neighbor they were a little drunk and took the Trump flag because they were playing a game of Capture the Flag. That's it for this episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics. <laughs>